welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we're in downtown Los Angeles at SCI Lighting Solutions, our touchdown podcast studio when we're on the West Coast, you know, the best coast. We're fortunate enough to have Tina Agassian, principal at HLB Lighting, on the podcast with us today. Tina is one of 14 principals at HLB and is here to talk to us today about something that is close to home. As you may recall, there was an explosion in Lebanon a year ago that was devastating to the local community, something that Tina is very familiar with as it's her home country. There's been an initiative established called Lights for Lebanon that is here to try and bring awareness and provide light to people that would otherwise not have it. And on the topic of that conversation, today we're here to talk about light and safety, light and awareness, and how while light may be a luxury to someone, it can very simply be applied to so many things. Tina, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you, Sam, and welcome to LA. Thank you. It's so nice and beautiful and warm this time of year. I always have to, you know, comment about how I really do just love Southern California. (laughs) Just about just about every time of year, unless it's 110 degrees. But I'm sitting here looking at some beautiful mountains and a blue sky. And I got to admit, downtown LA is a lot bigger when you're sitting in it. Mm-hmm. These buildings are huge. They're massive and they're quite astounding and beautiful. I know that California is home for you right. and that you've been with HLB for nearly two decades at this point. But um, tell everybody, who's Tina? And how'd you get your start in lighting? Actually, I've been at HLB like almost 25 years. Wow. <laughs> it's hard to admit that, but I actually started in architecture and uh, interior architecture, and I was working for a lighting designer at the time. Because of him, he was a very visionary person, Patrick Quigley, and he taught me a lot about lighting and choreography, and he got me interested in lighting. So I stayed in lighting instead of going to architecture, and what I realized is that it combines my passion for design and art and also the science, which is about my logical side of my brain. Being logical is an important thing. Definitely. Uh, When it comes to lighting, I think there's a, a tremendous opportunity to always not only think about fundamentally why we need light, Mm -hmm. but where we need light and how it's placed. When we look at lighting, it has so many qualities. There's so many things that light can do, whether or not it's something that's in a space or how it's making you feel. Talk to me a little bit more about how light creates this perception. So I think light is like one of the most powerful elements in an architectural setting because it really shapes the space as we all know. Without light, you know, we cannot see our interior spaces. So to me, it's an emotional thing. You know, it could be very emotional when you enter a space and you don't know it. You know, you don't feel it, but you know it. You don't really know it logically, but you feel, you need to feel the lighting in the space. So to me, as, as you're walking into a space, it should be either something, if it's something, depending on the task at hand, it should be either something really straightforward, logical, beautiful, or it could be something that's breathtaking and an experience that you can change somebody's mood, somebody's setting, or even, you know, help people feel better or feel more comfortable light. So light is a powerful, magical potion that we have in our hands that we have to use wisely. I think one of the other interesting things about light is you just called it a magical potion. It may be magical in the sense that it allows us to see, mm-hmm. which most people will actually take for granted. When you think about the sensory system in human beings, being able to see and perceive things and, and have that sense of depth or that notion of beauty or, or 
or maybe fear because there's the lack of being able to see. Those emotions are real. They're very, very real. And when we look at that, talk to me just a little bit more about, you know, how light really does affect our senses and how some people rely on it more than others. It's interesting because it brings me back to my childhood where my aunt was actually blind and she lived with us. So I always thought of how she's living in darkness and what a gift we have for those of us with the gift of sight. Did you ever sit down and have a conversation with her and talk and try to understand what it was like to not be able to see? Or did she ever provide any insight that made you understand how powerful this magic potion was that so many people just take advantage of every day is? Well, I think what I learned from my aunt is that because she didn't have sight, she had her other sensors were super heightened and she could kind of feel people in the room. So I guess what that means is that our vision is so important. What we see with light is so important that somebody who's deprived of light actually has to put all the other senses like into place so much more. Like she was doing things with her hands without seeing. And I always like felt bad that she was deprived. She could never see us. She never knew what we looked like. So I think of the people who are sort of living in dark areas of the world that don't have the privileges that we have. And that always affects me. You know, if somebody's living indoors and they don't have light and they only need to rely on the electric daylight and then we privileged here have electric lighting, right? So I just feel like it's unfair. When you talk about how it, it may, may be unfair in the sense that when the sun goes down, some people just don't have access to light. Mm-hmm. It makes light seem as if it is a bit of a luxury, but it's not because it's something that we all need. Talk mm-hmm. to me a little bit more about why everybody needs some form of interaction with light. Yeah, I know that there's those that feel like, well, light is actually, you know, at night we got it because of the circadian rhythms that it's better not to have light. But these are, I think what I've heard from the industries, other lighting designers that say, well, those countries that don't have light, it's fine because they're actually better for their circadian rhythm. But we have to remember we're functioning in the century that we're in. You know, we're not, people are not going to bed at five o'clock and waking up at five o'clock, right? We all need to function longer hours into the evening. And there was one project that I worked on in Africa, uh, an embassy project where I was told that our, the lighting that we're providing will be used by the locals, by the students to come. They will sit outside in front of the embassy and use that their reading lights to study. I just felt like this is not um, this is not fair. So because I mean there are other countries. Even when I was in Lebanon during the war, we had no electricity, we had no light. I guess because I've been there and I've experienced not having light, I see the value and I see how we take this for granted. And I think we also take for granted, you know, that light is not about just foot candles, right? It's also about the experience of the space, what you feel inside the space, and I think it's kind of a complex science because it's about emotion. <laughs> it's science, but it's also emotion. And to me, that's like the most powerful thing, that you can actually change people's moods with light. When you were in Lebanon and you experienced an environment without light, mm-hmm. being somebody who's so tuned into it, what did you experience in terms of your senses? Was it like your aunt? Did they become heightened or were you just drawn to say, I need light? I don't know how to function without it. We didn't know what to do with ourselves pretty much because <laughs> it's pitch dark. Yeah, You're just like trying to figure out what to do. And so... You can't do much and you have like what 12 hours of darkness or more depending on if it's winter and summer so i think what we did is we would go to bed really early and try to listen to what's going on outside and sometimes you don't want to do that when you're hearing bombs <laughs> so i think it's kind of makes you more aware of what's going on in your surrounding and it takes away that distraction but at the same time i think it's something that we need as human beings to function especially in this day and age 
that experience is a very real one. Uh, and it's one that fortunately and unfortunately not everybody has experienced. When you think about the fact that there is an opportunity to put light in a space today and you know that at a most simple and basic form there are so many people who don't have it, mm-hmm. who don't have it because it's temporarily unavailable or it's just something they've never had. And you consider how to deliver light into a space. There's a whole world of obviously commercial uh, lighting. Mm-hmm. architectural interior lighting design and also you know high-end outdoor spaces that get yes. beautifully lit plazas and, and spaces and things like that there are many other ways that light can be delivered in a space probably in a fundamentally more simplistic way talk to me about some of those experiences that you've had and uh reel us in a little bit well i think like to me outdoor spaces are really intriguing spaces to light because you don't have an obvious place to put a light right so you're always struggling to see where to put the light and the best way to do it is light is the most magical is when you purposely let people see it and that's sparkle right (laughs) or you purposely don't want people to see the light source and especially at night when you look at a light source it's much harder for your eye to adjust right so i think finding those special ways of lighting something like for example light that goes like to me dappled light is just the most beautiful when it's you don't know where it's coming from it's next to a tree and it's lighting a whole space you're feeling safe you're feeling comfortable but it almost feels like the space is not lit to me at night that really feels magical or to have low level lighting around you you know as you're navigating a space i would say like as far as going out to places where people do not have light i really am very strong believer in making solar lighting more available having more manufacturers put their effort into creating solar products i also believe in that because a lot of projects that we work on i I, and you know we're in southern california beautiful sunny why aren't we taking advantage and doing more solar lighting here too and it's right now it's out of reach from a price standpoint in the US because electricity is, is less expensive or we don't have the right panels or we don't have the right systems. I think as lighting designers, we need to sort of come together and really make these solar products more available so that we could potentially help places that they don't have those experiences that I just described. And solar lighting could be used in interesting ways. For example, it could be used like to create a cultural event, for example, You can put it in an area where people are disadvantaged, but you could say, what is the thing in this neighborhood? Maybe they have one special tree. You can have the kids kind of gather around the tree, play with the solar lighting, you know, put gels on it or use something cultural that's local to them that could let them feel like they designed the lighting, right? As you know, we're helping these people design the lighting or even the street lighting, you know, you have the general street lighting that we can provide and then to create these moments and experiences that give you sparkle, texture, all the things we want, low level lighting, lighting that comes from above, lighting that lights facades, buildings, trees or whatever you have in your environment. I think it's really important to light those elements. When you talk about lighting elements, it's simple to light Mm -hmm. anything. Right, you can take any sort of a source in any sort of form factor, and you can shine it at anything, and it illuminates. Right. There's a lot of science and mm-hmm. art, and there's a whole practice and a profession which you've been a part of for 25 years that talks about how to properly do that. But that's under the assumption that so many things are readily available. In the instances of the less fortunate, or where lighting is not a luxury, rather a necessity. Mm-hmm. It has to be quite simply applied in a space where the simple fact of the matter is let's just put a light in a space and keep the design as simple as giving people, as you mentioned, some task Let's light. candles. Yeah, yeah, some, yeah. some task light to do it. And while lighting isn't all about just putting light in a space, 
it's it really all goes back to relatively speaking what's available and if nothing's available something very simple Mm -hmm. can make a very strong impact i want to take a quick break and when we come back we'll dive into that a little bit more we'll talk more about what it means to just provide light as a basic need to people and also what's happening with your project at lights for lebanon sound good yeah thanks so Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, The Light Pod is brought to you by Latte, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. They bring you things like, well, this short podcast and short videos that are fun, informative, entertaining, and let you know a little bit more about what's going on in the world of lighting. Check them out at lytei.com. And welcome back. Over the break, Tina and I were chatting just a little bit more about all the opportunity that people have had uh, to put light in their space in a place where they've literally never had it before or something catastrophic has happened. Tina, talk to me just a little bit more about what it's been like to be in the profession of architectural lighting design and surrounded by a community that doesn't necessarily take a uh, lighting design for granted, but just the fact that we can put light in a space for granted and how you're able to ground yourself and really come back to those fundamental principles. I think honestly, when I got involved in the solar lighting initiative in Lebanon, I think that really opened my eyes a lot. I've always, because I come from another country, I've always known about the disadvantages that people may have in other countries that we don't have here, in the third world countries, so to speak. So because I was hyper aware of that, I've always thought, am I in in an industry of luxury? No, lighting should be available to everybody. Lighting is about equity. Everybody should have it. Everybody should have access to good lighting, right? I think as as a lighting designer, it's part of my job to be educating people and to also do something that I can do to help people. come up with something that's just like you're doing this to help educate us. I want to do something to educate the community or to make them aware and also actually even make the younger generation more aware of these things because I think there's now one world. The world is much smaller place than when I started lighting design practice. We didn't, you know, we didn't have as much connection to social media, etc. I think with all these opportunities as lighting designers, we can really make an impact to other parts of the world. When you look at the lighting design community broadly, you're at HLB. It's one of the larger lighting design firms here in mm-hmm. North America. Right. There's so many other lighting designers out there, uh, some of them in bigger firms, some of them in smaller firms. But if every single lighting designer took an opportunity to try to identify a place where instead of putting in what we'll call luxury lighting design, as mm-hmm. opposed to just lighting design in the form of it doesn't exist there today, but if I helped it, it would tomorrow. Right. How much of an impact could that make across the entire world? I think it'll be huge. I recently counted HLB has 90 plus employees. We have people for from over 20 countries. If you can think about that math, right? Like 100 people from almost 100 people from 20 countries. If you can multiply that from, with all the lighting designers in the world, I think we have a pretty strong reach. And as lighting designers, we're very lucky. We work with a ton of architects. We have a really large radial pattern as a large footprint because we impact a lot of projects. 
works. So I think as lighting designers, we have an opportunity. And I know the people in the industry that I know, everybody is very conscientious. We all love what we do, but we also, I think, tend to be the kind of people who really think about social issues, justice, you know, equity, being able to, for everybody to be able to have the same opportunities in life or people to have the opportunity to be able to study at night in a country where there's no electricity or access to electricity. Definitely lighting designers should do something about this and the manufacturers. We can all pitch in. There's a lot of ways from just generally speaking, raising awareness to going out and looking and saying what's out there. Who's in my community that I know doesn't have light, right? It's not about giving them the best light. In this case, it's just about providing light, but also providing a form of education in terms of, well, if we're going to give them just enough light to, so to speak, get by, apply it in a sense that with your technical expertise, background, and profession, you know it will make an impact. I know that in Lebanon, there's been an organization that's formed called Lights for Lebanon that uh, Manal started. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's formerly with HLB and a, a co-worker of yours. Tell me a little bit more about that project, that organization, and um, where it's gone from the day that it started. About a year ago, which is when the explosion happened, Manal called me because she knows I'm Lebanese and said, I have an idea. I want to bring solar lighting to Lebanon because there's huge areas that have no electricity and most of the NGOs over there are providing food and shelter and other things. Nobody's really thinking about lighting. We started brainstorming. She was able to find this woman, Natalie, who has already has an organization that she started, that she's actually been doing this for a while and she's providing solar lighting to other countries. So we use that as a model and we started meeting every week. And my job here from the US was to actually do fundraising in the middle of a pandemic that was a bit hard so we were able to raise over $75,000 which was great all happening during the pandemic and also even things like being able to ship lights there we had to have a woman who was traveling to Lebanon carry the handheld individual fixtures that we wanted to ship to people in her suitcase because we had no way of shipping it because the port has just exploded. I think this really made me really aware and also I think one of the things we really wanted to do is we didn't want to get the cheapest fixtures. We wanted to get fixtures that are long-lasting and these fixtures take longer to deliver so to us keeping those good good lighting practice guidelines was important to be able to not just say well I'm just going to give you any light source but we're going to give you we purposely waited a while to get the right fixture you know, for street lighting, and we actually just installed them. And in the middle of all this, there's COVID, there's lockdown, there's no shipping. So it was a really difficult time to do all the work. And I think the people in the ground, there were a lot of people in the ground, a lot of meetings with municipalities to get approval. And, you know, there was a lot of red tape to get those approvals. And in the meantime, you know, we, we're, I think what we're learning is that we still want to keep in mind that just because somebody is at a disadvantage, just because there's a country where they don't have electricity, We shouldn't be dumping on them products that do not last or products that are not well built or well shielded, et cetera. We should still use good lighting practice. And what we're doing is we're using existing poles, put the fixtures on. So we're a little bit stuck there because we cannot move the poles, but we're also putting lighting on buildings. So the team over there did a whole bunch of surveys to see where we need that. So it's a combination of giving people individual fixtures so they can use it inside their homes. It's a combination of working with the municipalities to provide general street safety lighting. The third component is lighting from building. And the fourth component is to provide lighting for fun and enjoyment. We want to work with the community to give them, for example, I think I was describing a little bit earlier, to give them like, let's say, a bunch of small held fixtures that they can use to create their own 
lighting effect, let's say on a very special tree in the neighborhood or in a park, in a park setting or something like that. So I think we want to make sure that as lighting designers that we give those privileges to people just because they're in a third world country doesn't mean we're going to give them lower quality lighting. But we're going to give them what we can, but we're going to make it as, use our practice as best as we can as lighting designers. I think what's so tremendous about this is not only are you doing something incredible for mm -hmm. people that truly do need it, but there's an opportunity for you to help people understand how powerful light is. And while you're bringing lights to Lebanon, you're using solar energy to capture it and, and deliver it since there is no electrical grid at this point in time. It's also an opportunity for people to learn about lighting, right? And like you said, giving them handhelds to go light up something special in their community or having a personal lighting device that we'll use uh, you know as a luxury or maybe when we go camping for the night in the rest of the world they value that source in a way that it becomes something that they become intimately curious with and you're at the same time you're giving a, a community and a culture a necessity mm -hmm. but you're educating them on something that so many other people are passionate about what an amazing story what an amazing opportunity as an architectural lighting designer at a lighting design firm halfway around the world to be able to give back and make an impact and probably teach more people about light faster than you ever have before. I know that you mentioned you would raise $75,000 at this point, but I've got to imagine that this project is far from over. How can people support it in any way? The way that people can help is uh, to go to the website called lightreach.net and click on Light for Lebanon and that will give you all the information. It will also talk a little bit about the solar lighting model and has like some really beautiful stories and also has a picture of a recently installed lighting, which I think looks quite nice. We collaborated with a local NGO and they were able to really help us put this together. The other thing that people can do, I think manufacturers can definitely make donations and get uh, you'll get recognition on the website. And this is not, this project is not ending. You know, we have more people now helping us. We're gonna have a fundraising event through the Women in Lighting Design. We're also gonna have another fundraising event for the Lebanese diaspora. And I'm thinking kind of this is a this is a way for us to learn about solar lighting so we can also implementing implement this in other countries. Maybe as lighting designers we can get together and go do a project in Africa somewhere. Maybe there's a lighting designer out there that needs our help from another country that we can help them sort of create the infrastructure. We've already figured it out. So let's use the model and help other people as well. This is the beginning of a of a long-term opportunity that can run your lifetime, my lifetime, and beyond. As electricity is readily available in so much of the world, it's non-existent in other places. And Lights for Lebanon and this this call, this initiative, this opportunity as a community to come together to say, how can we give back and, and still work on what we're passionate on and educate and raise awareness is truly tremendous. Tina, thank you so much for thank sharing so. this story with me. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing it with everyone that is tuned in to listen. If anybody has any questions, if they'd like to talk to you more, if they'd like to reach out, what's the best way that they can get in touch with you? So they can uh, send me an email. Uh, I'll give you my email address if that's okay. Yeah. T Agassian, that's T A G H A S S I A N, at hlblighting.com. And I would be happy to give them more information or help tell them how they can help. Thank you again. You're so welcome, Tina. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the invite to Los Angeles. I hope that uh, we can go catch some waves, maybe see some crabs on the beach or 
really just enjoy sunny Southern <laughs> California a little bit while we're here. Stay safe. Thanks, Sam. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. See you.